0: Jose Nino here, bringing you another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the unique pleasure of conversing with James Edwards, the host of The Political Cesspool. How are you today, James? I'm doing wonderful. It's great to be here and to make your acquaintance. Looking forward to a great show. All right. Before we start off, James, tell my audience more about yourself.
1: Well, uh, I am... The host of the Political Sesspo radio program, which is unique in so much as uh, it has to be the longest running pro-white broadcast media in the country, if not the world. It's been on the air for 18 years and uh, not just uh, with the Internet stream, which we do reach uh, a wider audience with, but also on AM and FM terrestrial stations here in the United States. I got my start, though, even before that, when I was 19 years old, working for Pat Buchanan, A couple of years after that, I still had the uh, piss and vinegar still in me, wanted to keep the band together. So when I was 22, I ran for a seat uh, in the Tennessee State Legislature and came up short, but made just enough of a name for myself to get an opportunity to start a radio program. So in 2004, when I was 24 years old, I started the political cesspool, and it was my intention to have this broadcast not be the local Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity gop light type of affair, uh, but rather to talk about real issues and uh, certainly do it in a way that would be appealing to a a wide audience, not to be sensationalist or shocking, but but tell the truth in love. And uh, I guess that's where I was supposed to be. So 18 years later, we're still going strong every Saturday night.
0: Yeah. What brought you into the Buchanan campaign? Like what part of his platform motivated you the most?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I can remember As a very young boy, well, I I say very young, I was about 12, my dad had come home and said, I just uh, listened to the man who should be president. And uh, he was in Nashville. And my father went to one of Pat's rallies. And for whatever reason, I knew nothing about politics or anything at the time. I mean, I'm a 12 year old boy, but my parents made the decision to homeschool me in my last couple of years of high school. And so I had extra time on my hands in the afternoon. And the Crossfire was on at the time in the late 90s. And I said, that's the guy. I remember Dad mentioning this guy years back. And I just started watching Crossfire. And it wasn't really one thing. I think if anything, it would have been uh, his America first policies with regards to trade and immigration were very appealing. I'm also a social conservative, uh, for lack of a better term. So his views on social issues were something that resonated with me. There really wasn't anything that turned me away. I guess there might be one or two things that, attracted me more than others, but really the whole platform, top to bottom, I found myself becoming more and more in agreement with as my own formative days and years of developing my own ideology came to be. And uh, I was just at a point in my life, I mean, so much in life uh, comes down to timing and circumstance. And I was at a time in my life, in my late teens, uh, to where I could volunteer and do that and travel the country and I'll be a part of that campaign—the last campaign he ran for president in '99 and 2000 for the Reform Party—and I was out there with him as a delegate in uh, Long Beach, California, that year, and also as the treasurer of the campaign in Tennessee. And uh, it was just in my blood after that, and, and it was really because of that I wanted to continue to fight, to continue the fight in a Buchanan-esque way in any way that I could. So I started to look for open doors and ways that would give me the opportunity to do that. And so the door opened for me to run for office, still not yet with a wife or a family at that time. And then uh, through that, another door opened and presented itself into radio. But it was really sort of like this foundation that uh, Buchanan had in his platform that sort of was the base for everything that I would go on to do. And, of course, we still are in total agreement with, with that basic platform. But, of course, the, my work has branched out more to deal with racial realities than I think uh, even even Buchanan was doing in his campaigns and things like that. But that's how it all started. Everybody's got their gateway.
0: So you never really had like a kind of like conservatism, Inc. phase or any type of like normie conservative phase
1: no, you know, I started at my earliest, uh, I guess, uh, you know, if you could start earlier than that age, more power to you. I just wouldn't have been able to drive myself to any of the meetings or any of the events. I started about as early as, as you can as, as, a, as mm-hmm. a young adult. And Buchanan was the the most moderate of all of my uh, <laughs> yeah. political attractions. So, no, I never had a phase where I was a, a Normie con or a Establishment Inc type of Republican or conservative. It was uh, Buchanan was the baseline and it just uh, went on from there.
0: Yeah, I can definitely relate because I got into more or less these views towards the end of high school through Ron Paul. But simultaneously, Mm -hmm. I was reading Pat Buchanan. This was 07-ish. And especially on the foreign policy and the immigration, because that's one thing too, especially for those who have been in the libertarian space, is a large chunk of them are not really good on like immigration and identity issues. But for me, that kind of clicked from the jump. And now I've noticed that some of the people that I've first encountered in politics, they're kind of coming around to a lot of this stuff because of how radical the anti-whites and other leftists are these days.
1: Yeah, I you know of course know a lot of people who have arrived at our final destination using the avenue of libertarianism. I did uh, vote, of course, for Ron Paul and uh, his primary campaigns for the GOP nomination. I believe it was two thousand eight, two thousand twelve. So of course, yep. you know a lot of what he he said resonated with me. By that point, I was already on the radio and and things like that. But I guess you can't discount your childhood. And for me, and this is really the three pillars upon which my program stands. I was raised in a very, you know, traditionally conservative Southern home. So we were in church every Sunday, and then, of course, I was always taught to respect my ancestors, and that included, of course, and uh, perhaps especially my Confederate forebears. And that's really uh, the, the the show. I mean, the show. It's uh, it, there is elements of faith that are uh, put forth, obviously uh, heavy doses of. Uh, Pride in our ancestry. And of course, that transcends just not just the South, but to our extended lines and to our kin, and to our blood and, of course, uh, race realism. So those are the three things. And then from, you know, whatever's going on in the news, whatever current events, whatever headlines, it's always examined through the lens that tripod, I guess you could say.
0: The point you raise about the South definitely resonates to me because I'm originally not even from this country. I was born in Venezuela, but my parents brought me here when I was pretty young. But I lived most of my life in Texas. And one thing that definitely contributed to my long-term quote-unquote red-pilling was how all the – you see like history books, TV, and even all these campaigns to burn the historic like southern nation in effigy through monument removals, just this constant blood libel against like Southern traditions in the Confederacy that really contributed to like the hardening of my views. And in your time hosting your radio show, have you found people in your area to be receptive to your message?
1: Not just my area, but indeed the entire world. I, I we receive equal amounts of support uh, throughout the different regions of the United States, and uh, we obviously have a worldwide audience that that tunes in and not just tunes in but also contributes financially and and in other ways. But in fact, at this time, after all these years, even though we do have a month-long series each April that's dedicated to Southern and Confederate history and we also have a, a series we've done the last few years called our March Around the World. Throughout the month of March, we only interview uh, thought leaders and elected officials and things like that uh, from outside of the United States. All in, in, A month dedicated solely to international guests. And of course, throughout the year, we intersperse out-of-country guests and and, and Southern issues uh, as, as they come up. But uh, after all these years, though it is equal parts really uh in terms of where our audience lives and uh, from you know, we were reading correspondence from uh, Minnesota and South Dakota last week it's uh, really widespread because even though that's something that uh, we we are always that's always going to be a part of our fabric it's it's not a, a one trick type shop but yes you know, in fact to answer your question uh more to the point obviously what people are able to do right now post-Charlottesville has changed some things. And it was really a different world in the early 2000s when I first started the broadcast. And it's a broadcast that's been covered literally by everything and everyone, from the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, you name it, just about every newspaper and print publication, magazines, television, I had some time that I spent uh, short, a <laughs> short-lived uh, run as a correspondent on CNN. Uh, They would bring me up to talk about these issues. And so we've done a lot of media. We've gotten a lot of media. And so that's grown the audience to be sure. But um, back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, one of the first things I did actually was to use the opportunity that radio gave me to reach people to stand up in defense of what were at the time three parks in the city of Memphis that uh, were named after the Confederacy. You had Nathan Bedford Forest Park, Uh, which was actually where General Forrest was buried. Uh, They reinterred him just last year, unfortunately. And you had Jefferson Davis Park and Confederate Park. And Al Sharpton was coming to town to do a march to try to remove the names of the parks. And we took out a permit and uh, we were gonna have a vigil that uh, coincided with his uh, planned route. And uh, we outdrew Al Sharpton. And as a matter of fact, because of our presence, he canceled the march and did a standalone demonstration at a park rather than marching through the city. So, yes, I mean, and we had a couple of hundred people there. We did another event in 2015 in cooperation uh, with uh, another entity. But uh, together, uh, collectively, we, we drew 500 people and, and got a lot of press for that. So, yes, uh, people will come. I travel quite a bit and there's uh, very wonderful things that you will see if people are given safe cover to be who they are. Uh, there's uh, an event that I go to, an annual event, and I'll actually be there next week on uh, July the ninth. It's uh, I do a remote broadcast from South Carolina every year, and it's on uh, private property, and it's uh, something that's been going on a couple of years now. And the gentlemen who hosts this event, it's a Dixie Fest. I mean, just and you 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 have a thousand people uh, without any exaggeration. You will have uh, you know at least a thousand people that will turn up to this very fine looking. Uh, men, women, boys and girls of all ages, families, and they come and they revel in the opportunity to be who they are. And a friend of mine who was there with me last year had an excellent uh, quote that I've stolen from him to describe it. He said, when the river is allowed to flow freely, our people come back to us and uh, come back to their traditions and to their foundings. And that that's the truth. So, of course, you know, we have this soft totalitarianism here in the United States where uh, you could very well lose your job or face uh, social condemnation for not going along with the prevailing narratives and trends. And so because of that, people sort of self-censor themselves. Uh, But when you give them an event to come to where they feel uh, relatively safe, uh, they do come back. And so that's why I've always maintained that this force of oppression that lords over us right now uh, could very well be a mile wide and uh, an inch deep. I, I think that uh, it's very tenuous for the regime. And I always think, and without any naivete, with all the attacks and slings and arrows that I've suffered over my career, uh, I've been through a lot. So I'm not Baghdad Bob, you know, being a propagandist saying we're about to win as the American tank <laughs> bowl, in my back shot. But I've always felt as though uh, we were right on the cusp of turning a corner And uh, there are, in fact, a lot of trends and data that that suggest there may be an opportunity coming in the very near future for just such an occurrence.
0: So I'm curious about your CNN appearances, because I've noticed like in the 90s and even the early 2000s, you had figures like Peter Brimelow, even Jared Taylor make appearances on mainstream shows. How were you able to pull that off at that time?
1: Well, you know, of course, uh, it was unsolicited. They invited me. They had identified me as someone who was willing to offer a different point of view on the issues and I guess do it (laughs) in a way that would be compatible with, with TV. I guess I spoke well enough to warrant the invitation, even though, of course, I was being brought on to be the villain. But it was a different time back then. Certainly now, I mean, we still get covered by these entities, except we're just no longer invited to to be part of the discussion. They (laughs) they certainly love, uh, they claim to love diversity, but there's no love of the diversity of opinion. Uh, But no, CNN would in fact send uh, send a car, (laughs) fly me first class and uh, up to New York. And we did that. And uh, sometimes you would do some some appearances from a, a local studio. But, uh, you know, it, it was it was always well done. And uh, they would bring me on. I, one time I was on for a full hour to talk about self-segregation. I was on actually with Jesse Lee Peterson. Uh, had, <laughs> we're, we're on the uh, side of saying, of course, it's natural and healthy for people to self-segregate. And we were being pitted against two other panelists who were, uh, of course, there to tell us how wrong we were. But that went for a full hour. And that was a, a pretty amazing thing, even after all these years. And all the coverage we've gotten to have experienced that. And uh, I think another time I was brought on to talk about uh, why immigration is a bad thing. And of course, I always did it from a pro-white perspective. I mean, I was brought on there for a reason and I certainly gave them what they wanted. I I talked explicitly about race and uh, there was, there there were, were of course, others. um, Oh, the uh, Knoxville, the murder in Knoxville. I was brought on to debate the NAACP chairman at the time about the Knoxville horror where they uh, of course, brutally murdered that uh, white couple in Knoxville, uh, and, and again, you know, there were some others ab- above and beyond that. But yeah, but it, you did have that, and that was in the time you're talking about. I mean, Jared was simultaneously making appearances like that, and uh, that really started to peter out by around the time of Trump. I, I think after Trump, they just really yeah. didn't have the back on Big time.
0: Yeah, it's actually hilarious to I think. Jared Taylor was on Chris like Matthew's show. He, like he made like an appearance. It's like it's crazy to see how much like discourse has changed. When you first started getting involved, were you like subjected to any form of like financial deplatforming or any type of debanking of that nature or was it just like more of like the two minutes hate that you see from like the ADL and other stuff like that?
1: All of it all of it. And I mean, from the very beginning, I think, in fact, we may have been some of the first people to experience mm. that. Of course, within uh, the first few months I was on the air, I was officially designated an SPLC fide hate group, which I always thought. And, and we, we get it, that list gets updated every year. And so thankfully, we get uh, rechristened each and every year. And I can remember this was in the spring of 05, I believe. Uh, so, you I know, mean, literally just months, maybe of those 06, just months after we went on the air. And all of the local network affiliates wanting a comment about being, you know, designated a hate group. And of course, this is where nine times out of 10, and I'm being probably underestimating that. Nine times out of 10, this is where white men lose their spine and they do the white whip shuffle and they apologize and <laughs> yeah. plead ignorance and you got me all wrong. I'm not a racist. And of course you do that. That's just blood in the water. And uh, I wrote a book about how they use the R word racism to, to shut up uh, dissent. But uh, I faced the camera set on and I said, yes, this is a wonderful day for me. I'm ecstatic to be named to that uh, hate list. And you really haven't arrived as a leader until uh, you get the ball rolling by being on there. So that's how I handled that. And I've always handled that. In fact, that's been the tagline of the program. No retreat, no surrender, no apologies. But it was just shortly after that that we got the platform from PayPal. I can vividly remember that being in 2006. Now, wow, we're on uh, AM FM radio. So obviously there's no swear words. We don't No advocacy of violence or anything like that. I mean, it is it is very much a well done and well presented and well reasoned program uh, that I would be very comfortable with my children listening to. Which you know, of course, they know who I am and what I do, and they do listen. They come to my conferences, and you know, it's made for it's made for you know PG discussion of of the issues. It's uh, and that is actually something that I got from Buchanan. I didn't want to be a Howard Stern for our cause. I wanted to present these. Issues with with dignity and, and with uh, some tact, but uh, it was in 2006 that we lost PayPal, and I don't know if anybody getting deplatformed before that in our ranks. And uh, also Facebook. By 2008, I had been deplatformed by Facebook, and then you know ever since then, for whatever reason, I, I have been able to stay on Twitter. I didn't even begin my Twitter account until 2016, which was well over a decade after we went on the air. But I'm still on Twitter, but everything else, YouTube, you name it, all gone. Uh, with the credit card processors for years and years and years, it was just like playing whack-a-mole. We'd get uh, we'd get one up, and after a certain amount of time, it would get taken down always for these nonsensical and incomprehensible terms of service violations, which, of course, they couldn't even explain because there were, weren't any. It was just censorship, and uh, for the sake of censorship. Uh, but I, over the years, we've lost you know a dozen credit card processors, and now we have just uh, we're checking money order only. So people want to support us uh, as long as we can still have access to the United States Postal Service. Uh, we will get donations that way. But yeah, we've been deplatformed by everything and everybody, and it started very early and it has never stopped. Along with the attacks from the media. And the ADL and the SPLC. Now, interestingly, you know, we we, we did get some interviews, obviously. We were talking about CNN before and every time CNN would bring me on, they would bring me on as the uh, as a talk radio show host or a conservative talk radio show host. Uh, They they use that term, of the political cesspool. And it was interesting because every time CNN actually had me on. I was always introduced that way. But come 2016, CNN was still covering me, although not having me on. And it was white supremacist James Edwards. So I was thinking, and I actually made mention of this at the time, when you brought me on to talk about these issues, I was a conservative talk radio host. Now, my position on the issues have never changed. I still talk about it in a way that was very similar to what I was doing back at the time. So how did I become a white supremacist (laughs) <laughs> in between uh, these two time periods. And that just goes to show again how much the media changed and how much their, not just coverage of us changed, but uh, how they were going to present us and present our message to people who tune into their broadcasts.
0: One of the things I've noticed over the past decade or so has been like the normalization of political violence, like on the left, especially like almost like state-sanctioned violence against, like, any right-wing figure. Have you gotten in any physical confrontations from these, like, haters and other radical leftists?
1: No, nope. Luckily, uh, we've been able to skate that. It's just never come up. I mean, we try to use good sense and good judgment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have been out in the streets before, and it was never an issue. We have all of our people. It's, the people I've met in doing this work have really been, by any standard of measurement, the very best people I've met in life. Uh, it's really the best people that America has to offer. You're talking about everybody from doctors and lawyers to working class, middle class people, the entire strata of the economic ladder. Uh, but to a man and to a woman, the people that I've met as a result of my work uh, have, have just been wonderful, family friendly, you know, uh, tax paying, hard hardworking. And uh, when we have these events, there's not a piece of trash left. It's just been a wonderful thing. So yes, unless it's uh, The left coming in and and starting the violence, there is no violence to be had. And of course, I've seen other people that I know and other groups that I've read about that have been subjected to that. But uh, for whatever reason, we uh, have been able
0: to dodge it, thankfully. Have you ever experienced any type of like conservatives or whatever, or any just like normie conservative throw you under the bus or? Just pull like the, the usual stunts that the that establishment Republicans do with regards to anybody that goes outside the box when you talk about like race or like immigration or like any politically incorrect issue. Have you experienced that from the right?
1: You know, uh, this is something Jared Taylor and I were talking about this one time at an event and uh, he and I can both say that I have never lost And this is rare, I think, because I know a lot of people who have, and it's not their fault. But I have never lost a friendship or an acquaintance as a result of my work. Uh, My entire family and extended family know exactly what I do, obviously. I mean, we do this very publicly and with my given name and all of that. And it's what I've done for my entire adult life. So all of my friends and acquaintances, I mean, they know that I'm a talk radio show host, and they know the issues. And most of them are in agreement, but even in the ones that aren't, they're not going to let that affect uh, the relationship. And I'm not either. So uh, I have never had a problem with anybody in my personal life. Now, uh, with regards to politics, of course, I mean, where to begin? Uh, right before Rush Limbaugh died, he compared me to Bull Connor on the radio program. I mean, it was it had to be <laughs> wow. or two before he died. I, I wasn't tuned in. I didn't ever listen to Rush hardly, but uh, somebody who was a listener of the show got it and captured the audio and sent it to me and uh, just days before he passed away. And then, of course, I mean, yes, I mean, you you probably remember the fact that we had interviewed Donald Trump Jr. Uh, Donald Trump, the, the Trump campaign had contacted me in the spring of 2016. It was in late February, the first week of March, right before Super Tuesday. and They had offered me press credentials uh, to cover a Trump rally. Now, if you get credentials to... A rally like that, you're going to get vetted by the Secret Service, and you got to turn in all of your, you know, your name and ID and all that, and get checked out. And I was, and I was cleared. And we uh, did the event. It was a wonderful thing. It was really a lot of fun. Trump was speaking live at one of those quintessential rallies back in the 2016 campaign. It was a full house, and just so happened that that event was scheduled concurrently with my live broadcast. So we were able to actually broadcast live from his press pin while he was speaking and you could hear him in the background. It was just, it made for a great radio. Well, the very next day, I got an email from one of their publicists saying, would you have Donald Trump Jr. on the program? So this was completely unsolicited by me. In fact, they solicited the interview. And uh, I said, sure. And uh, we had a great interview with Donald Trump Jr. He agreed with everything we were saying and doubled down on it, in fact. And uh, then, of course, it hit the news and it hit the news and it stayed there from March of sixteen. 16- through the end of the campaign. In fact, the week before the presidential election, Hillary Clinton put out a fundraiser on our website saying people like James Edwards will be steering the country if Trump is elected. <laughs> Made a lot of news. But but yeah, I mean, they all disavowed and, and did all of that, which I didn't care. I mean, my thing was, if Trump was really going to build the wall, you can use me, abuse me, you can disavow me. It's a, you got to have a thick skin in this. But yeah, I mean, there's been all kinds of people like that, that uh, the establishment conservatives type. In fact... Even members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, we've had troubles with uh, leaders of the Sons of Confederate Veterans over the years. Oh, wow. And again, uh, we've always tried to do things the right way as gentlemen and as professionals. But I have probably had more trouble out of respectable conservatives, as Bob Whitaker used to call them, Mm -hmm. than I have left. I I think I could say that. I've had more trouble and and more, (laughs) I don't know, a media attack from the New York Times, Washington Post, whatever. But in terms of like personal dealings, yeah, I've probably had more trouble with with respectable conservatives
0: than. Yeah, that makes sense because anytime like this, the dissident right is able to get a foothold in those conservative structures or Republican structures, that whole structure just comes tumbling down because it's it's built on a house of cards. Because these guys are glorified controlled opposition at the end of the day, and if any of our ideas start making an entrance there, it's game over for them. That's why they fight really hard (laughs) to purge anybody to the right of them.
1: But you know, I've got a theory on that that always gives me comfort and solace. And that is that everybody, including men, want to be led and they want to feel safe. And so when our ideas become trendy and fashionable and in vogue and the path to power once more, most people are just going to fall in line. They're going to take the path of least resistance, whatever's easiest for them. Most people just like look after number one. Most people don't eat, live, sleep, and breathe politics. They want to do what's easiest for them, what's going to get them paid, what's going to let them take care of a family. And when our ideas are predominant, once again, the people, it's just going to happen very gradually and then all at once, uh, to borrow the cliche. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that. So we've talked about this quite a bit since Biden has been the president, and that is all of these polls that suggest that the Republican base, which is radicalized in the very best sense of the word, since Trump has been out of office, with regards to our issues, our issues of identity and our issues of the great replacement and things like that. So now the latest poll, says that 73% of Trump voters think Democrats are trying to replace white people with immigrants and people of color who share their political views. 73% of 60 million voters, you know, however many voted for Trump, 60 plus million, 73% of 60 million, you're talking about tens of millions of people now who share fundamentally our take on things. And so you you say to yourself, well, where are they? Again, that gets back to, Right now, you still got the opportunity to snipe these people one by one if they get out of line on social media or at work or in university or wherever. But let those people get uncomfortable enough, and whether it's gonna be an economic collapse or how much higher this inflation may go, or if it's gonna be $200 to fill up a tank instead of $100 as it is now, I don't know what the catalyst is gonna be. But one day, the opportunity will present itself And when it does, you have to be ready. And I think increasingly, our people are ready. I think our people have been radicalized because the left doesn't know how to pump the brakes, because the left is so intoxicated with their hatred of white people and uh, of our history. And if it's jealousy or envy or whatever it is that's driving that, I don't know. But they have no discernment. And white people saw the BLM riots. White people saw... How those terrorists and anarchists were being uh, coddled. And they see that their history is being replaced. And for whatever reason, for years and years and years, even though all of this was true, it didn't become any more true in the last few years. But there has just been a cascade of events that have led people to this point. And so now I think we do have the numbers. It's just a matter of, of course, getting organized and getting activated. But I, I say again to repeat myself I don't think that the opportunity is a pipe dream. I think it will present itself and it'll be very interesting to see what happens when it does. But already, in, in addition to that anecdotal evidence, I mean, you're seeing things happen. For instance, here's a Blake Masters out of Arizona saying you would have never oh, yes. heard, I never heard uh, a politician for a seat like the United States Senate saying something like this, saying black people, frankly, quote unquote, are responsible for America's gun violence problem. You had Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, say uh, last Christmas that the attack uh, that the murderous black at the Christmas parade in Wisconsin, that was an anti-white attack. Again, that doesn't happen five years ago. And now at the Republican Party of Texas, we were talking about this on the last program. This isn't the Republican Party of Rhode Island. This is the Republican Party of the biggest Republican state in the union. They are trying to put the Republican Party. The GOP of Texas has voted to put secession on the referendum Mm -hmm. in 2023. That's next year. And in addition to that, the delegates officially declared at their state GOP convention earlier this month that they want to repeal the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So I'm telling you, something is changing and it might not have manifested itself in a very tangible way right now, but even what we're seeing with the Supreme Court, even though that's dealing more with social issues and not racial issues, technically, you tell me two years ago, Roe versus Wade's gonna be gone uh, in June of 2022. I say 0% chance of that. And I'm an optimist. Uh, so things are happening and things will continue to happen. History will not follow this course indefinitely. History uh, swings on a pendulum. And I think that all of the wokeness, the transgender nonsense, they have just gone so far and they've become violent. And you see the double standards at every turn. I think that uh, it's really about to swing back our way.
0: I'm definitely optimistic as well because there's a lot of rumors that the court might take on some affirmative action cases as well. And I wanted to see a rollback of the civil rights revolution, which has been uniquely damaging to the historic American nation on all objective fronts from the anti-discrimination laws to even like the hart Seller Act, which was passed in that same period under the same ethos of radical egalitarianism, and we're due for a correction for sure. Do you foresee balkanization as a potential outcome in the near future for the U.S.? I think that's inevitable, and that's a great question. I think history has, has told us,
1: if you look at the history of civilization, and you look at the history of nations, this is, I, I read a study, and in, in where we're at now, 300 years as a nation, 400 years as a, uh, people on this continent. It's about time for a breakup. Uh, and, and of course, throughout the history of Europe, that was just very commonplace. And there's mm-hmm. nothing here that protects America from such a fate. I, I do believe that as a result of the long march through the institutions, and you have just such corrupt uh, ideology permeating out of everything now, the media, academia, the government, the military, the churches, that there's no going back i don't think there's gonna i think some people are too far gone they've been too poisoned to ever be reconciled with i think when you look at some of these people and there could just be no putting it back together now after the war between the states okay you were still basically one race and you still had the same holidays and the same heroes uh, for the most part i mean predating the war i mean and you had enough commonality that you could put North and South back together to an extent. But the, the the issues that divide Americans now are everything. We don't agree on the same. We don't have the same language. You know, we're just a polyglot mass of multicultural yes, identity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't work. Uh, the history of race relations can be summed up in one word, and that's conflict. And of course, you have a lot of white collaborators that have gone along with this and are are working for the other instead of taking their own side. And I think, yes, I think that the divide is far, far, far too wide to ever be bridged again. I mean, we may chug along for a little while longer with this uneasy impasse where we all share the same geographical living space. uh, But we are already two separate nations. You see that Uh, the South. And the Mountain West and some of the other Western states are a totally different nation in ideology. And and in any way you could be different than the Acela Corridor on the east and the the left coast on the west. You're already two separate nations. So it's just really going to come down to making it official. Yes, I do think not only uh, that America will be balkanized, uh, but that we will live to see it.
0: Yeah, I look forward to that. I don't know about everybody yeah. out
1: there. <laughs> you know, some yeah. people may be yeah. like Moses. They'll see the, the the promised land, but they might not quite get there. But yes, I do think America will uh, inevitably split apart. I mean, again, for God's sake, you've got the Republican Party of Texas hastening the day and trying to get it on the ballot now. I don't know if that's going to fly, but they are the ruling party down there. Again, it'd be different if it was the Republican Party of Massachusetts, which doesn't have any control of what's going on in the state. But yeah. the Republican Party of Texas does.
0: Yeah, I've been involved with Texas GOP politics for a while, and that was a very welcome change because a lot of activists there for the past decade or so have generally been pretty disappointed with the Texas GOP. So they've taken it upon themselves to use like grassroots issues, ranging from like constitutional carry to So abortion to like take back control of the party. And it's now clear that their delegates are very much of like the more hard right variety and pro-identity, like Texas identity and all that.
1: That's an excellent point and you're spot on. And that's another thing that, uh, look, we could sit here and say, this is what we do and do not like about Trump and his legacy, but there's no doubt about it. He brought in people back into the grassroots of the Republican Party that were either not involved or had not yet been radicalized to the, and I use that as a in the best sense possible, had not been radicalized to the extent that they needed to be, and to the extent that they are now. Yes, you go back to the Republican Party pre-Trump. You're looking at the coronation of Jeb Bush. You're looking at, at <laughs> Marco the coronation of Cheney's, and, and and look at look at Liz Cheney now. Last uh, poll I heard, she's thirty points down. That's the end of a, of a dynasty. All right, so that whole GOP. Yes, I mean there are still. And this is something that uh, was said by a guest on a recent broadcast of mine. Anytime you see a a Republican leader or a Republican elected official, whether it be DeSantis or whomever, saying things we like, pat yourself on the back because we're the ones who did that. People who think like us that are pushing them there because if they don't go there, they're not going to stay in power. That's what I'm talking about. When our side are the power brokers, when our side and our issues are the ones that people need to say they adhere to. I'd rather you be a true believer, of course, but um, look, vote my way and say what I want you to say and do what I want you to do. And I don't care what your true beliefs are, if you're a sociopath or whatever, just get in there and do it. And that's, of course, look, not all of these people are true believers and whatever the latest narrative of the left is. They just know that that's the easiest way for them to to be in that position. Uh, So pat yourself on the back when you see the GOP moving in this direction, because it's people like us. Who had a hand in that, and people like us—that's going to keep them there and keep moving the party in that direction. And you're seeing an end of, of an era uh, of the Bush dynasty, the Cheney dynasty, people like that. But they would revert back to that, uh, to the where their biggest concerns are tax cuts, or regu- deregulate, whatever you know, Republicans were up to before identity and immigration and some of these other things became uh, much more prevalent. They would love to have atrophy and just be lazy and go back to that style of republicanism. But uh, our people can have a hand in whether or not that is allowed. And you're seeing that. That's an excellent point you made. You're seeing that in Texas, that even the Texas Republican Party, which is a southern state, which is probably more conservative than some of the other state Republican parties. uh, Even they left a lot to be desired less than a decade ago. And now uh, they're, they're saying we want to secede. So that's a radical change in a very short time. And it'll be very interesting to see if we can keep this trajectory up two years, five years into the future where we are. That is really something to behold because the Supreme Court is just giving the progressives loss after loss after loss this week. If they keep it up and we keep up uh, the the drumbeat on our platforms like this program and others and and our people or people who think like us that perhaps have never heard of us or who we've never met, keep the pressure on the state GOPs, you can have a synthesis there that uh, really shakes things up and gives us a lot more to be excited about than hope and potential.
0: I definitely look forward to this right-wing populist future because it has a lot of potential to do great things. Now, I think that'll do it for today, James. So before we leave, could you tell my audience where they can follow your work? By all means, and I appreciate you asking and giving me the opportunity
1: to be with you and speak with the audience today. I hope it wasn't too long-winded and that we could cover most of the things you wanted to talk about. But thepoliticalcesspool.org is the website, thepoliticalcesspool.org. And we broadcast live every Saturday night. But if you miss it, uh, the broadcast archives are evergreen.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.